This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear One Minus One by Colm Tobin, which was published in The New Yorker in May of 2007. I know now, as I walk toward the house I have rented here, that if I called and told you that the bitter past has come back to me tonight in these alien streets with a force that feels like violence, you would say that you are not surprised. You would wonder only why it has taken six years. The story was chosen by Hisham Matar, whose most recent book, A Month in Siena, was published last year. Hi, Hisham. Hello, Deborah. So the last time that we were doing this together, we talked about Shakespeare's Memory by Borges. One minus one is a very different story, a very different kind of story. What draws you to it? Well, it's a story I love, but uh, it's also I wanted to choose a story that I had read in the magazine and remember vividly the, the encounter with it. Um, and it just affected me very, very deeply. And um, for how simple it is, it is, in very subtle ways, it's about such complex things. And I think for that reason, over the years since I first read it, I've occasionally thought back on it and found more and more layers in it. Well, the story's about a man from Ireland living in the U.S. who returns home um, as his mother is dying. And you've also written in fiction and in nonfiction about exile, about the loss of a parent, about estrangement. Was there something in the subject matter that speaks to you, or is it more in the writing? I mean, Colm Toybin does that very well in his work. It's something that he manages to open up that space of rootlessness that has touched me very, you know, very much. So I'm sure, I'm sure there's a connection. I also have a very um, a slightly embarrassing uh, relationship to Ireland and to Irish literature that I think has made me susceptible to it. Don't be embarrassed. <laughs> <laughs> it's embarrassing because when I was 17 years old, I had come under the influence of all these great Irish writers and felt so uh, drunk <laughs> by their brilliance. Beckett and, and Joyce and Keats. And, and I thought, this has got to be a magical place, having never been to Ireland, knowing nothing about Ireland except those writers. And I made a promise to myself when I was 17 that when I go to Ireland, I must kiss the ground. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not fond of kissing the ground in general. <laughs> um, for that reason, and to stay true to my 17-year-old self... I never went to Ireland. I avoided it <laughs> <laughs> until I was shortlisted for a prize, my first book, and the prize was being judged by a writer that I admire, Dirt Matheely, who passed away a few years back. And the MC for the prize was going to be Colm Toybin. So I thought, I can't miss that. I must go. And <laughs> Um, and it was magical, you know, And uh, but to negotiate kissing the ground, when I got off the airplane, <laughs> I pretended as though I was bending down to tie my shoelace and kissed my finger and touched the ground. I thought that's a good compromise. Now I've done it. <laughs> but, you know, from that trip, really, a group of Irish writers, Dirtmit and uh, Rory Doyle and a few other writers sort of took me 
really embraced me and made me feel very welcome. And uh, I had such a natural connection and correspondence with them that has stretched for a long time to, to this day. And I think it's got to be connected in part, at least, to some of the experiences that Irish writers have gone through, sadly, you know, whether it's censorship or exile. And so, so they, they, felt, they felt very close to me. Yeah. And, and when you were reading these Irish writers as a 17-year-old, you were in Egypt? I was in Cairo. Um, my family had left Libya about seven years before then. And certainly for me then, they were the most powerful uh, reading experience, if you want to call it that, uh, in the English language, partly because of what I was into, but also, I think, because of what we're talking about. And now, for me, this story, One Minus One, and, and a few others, sort of stand out as quite different from Tobin's novels, at least the hmm. recent ones, which tend to be more historical or to, to involve real people like Henry James. He has a new novel coming out in September, which is about Thomas Mann. This story feels much more close to him or more personal. Do you think that it stands out in that way from his body of work? In the ways that you describe, yes, but also I think it's very coherent to his body of work because of this intimacy and this kind of easy sociability, you know, in the writing. And it's obvious that this is a man who, who is on the side of people in some way, who is energized by our nature. And also, I think it reminds me of some of the other things that he's written in terms of it being a kind of letter or testimony. You know, there's several short stories that are written uh, that way uh, mm -hmm. by him. Mm -hmm. So, yes, it's its own thing, but I could see his mark on it, definitely. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll talk some more after the story. And now here's Hisham Matar reading One Minus One by Colm Tobin. One Minus One. The moon hangs low over Texas. The moon is my mother. She is full tonight, and brighter than the brightest neon. There are folds of red in her vast amber. Maybe she is a harvest moon, a Comanche moon. I do not know. I have never seen a moon so low and so full of her own deep brightness. My mother is six years dead tonight. And Ireland is six hours away, and you are asleep. I'm walking. No one else is walking. It is hard to cross Guadalupe. The cars come fast. In the community hall food store, where all are welcome, the girl at the checkout asks if I would like to join the store's club. If I pay $70, my membership, she says, will never expire and I will get a 7% discount on all purchases. Six years, six hours, $70, 7%. I tell her I'm here for a few months only, and she smiles and says that I'm welcome. I smile back. I can still smile. If I called you now, it would be half two in the morning. You could easily be awake. If I called, I could go over everything that happened six years ago, because that is what is on my mind tonight, as though no time had elapsed, as though the strength of the moonlight had by some fierce magic chosen tonight to carry me back to the last real thing that happened to me. 
On the phone to you across the Atlantic, I could go over all the details as though I were in danger of forgetting them. I could remind you, for example, that you wore a white shirt at the funeral. It must have been warm enough not to wear a jacket. I remember that I could see you when I spoke about her from the altar, that you were over in the side aisle on the left. I remember that you, or someone, said that you had parked your car almost in front of the cathedral because you had come late from Dublin and could not find parking anywhere else. I know that you moved your car before the hearse came after Mass to take my mother's coffin to the graveyard with all of us walking behind. You came to the hotel once she was on the ground, and you stayed for a meal with me and Susie, my sister. Joe, her husband, must have been near, and Cahill, my brother, but I don't remember what they did when the meal was over and the crowd had dispersed. I know that as the meal came to an end, a friend of my mother's, who noticed everything, came over and looked at you and whispered to me that it was nice that my friend had come. She used the word friend with a sweet, insinuating emphasis. I did not tell her that what she had noticed was no longer there, was part of the past. I simply said, yes, it was nice that you had come. You know that you are the only person who shakes his head in exasperation when I insist on making jokes and small talk, when I refuse to be direct. No one else has ever minded this as you do. You're alone in wanting me always to say something that is true. I know now, as I walk toward the house I have rented here, that if I called and told you that the bitter past has come back to me tonight in these alien streets with a force that feels like violence, you would say that you are not surprised. You would wonder only why it has taken six years. I was living in New York then, the city about to enter its last year of innocence, I had a new apartment there, just as I had a new apartment everywhere I went. It was on 90th and Columbus. You never saw it. It was a mistake. I think it was a mistake. I didn't stay there long, six or seven months, but it was the longest I stayed anywhere in those years or the years that followed. The apartment needed to be furnished. I spent two or three days taking pleasure in the sharp bite of buying things two easy chairs that I later sent back to Ireland, a leather sofa from Bloomingdale's, which I eventually gave to one of my students, a big bed from 1-800-MATTRESS, a table and some chairs from a place downtown, a cheap desk from the thrift shop. And all those days, a Friday, a Saturday and a Sunday at the beginning of September, as I was busy with delivery times, credit cards, and the whiz of taxis from store to store, my mother was dying, and no one could find me. I had no cell phone, and the phone line in the apartment had not been connected. I used the payphone on the corner if I needed to make calls. I gave the delivery companies a friend's phone number in case they had to let me know when they would come with my furniture. I phoned my friend a few times a day, and she came shopping with me sometimes, and she was fun, and I enjoyed those days. The days when no one in Ireland could find me to tell me that my mother was dying. Eventually, late on the Sunday night, 
I slipped into a Kinko's and went online and found that Susie had left me message after message, starting three days before, marked urgent or are you there or please reply or please acknowledge receipt and then just please. I read one of them and I replied to say that I would call as soon as I could find a phone and then I read the rest of them one by one. My mother was in the hospital. She might have to have an operation. Susie wanted to talk to me. She was staying at my mother's house. There was nothing more in any of them. The urgency being not so much in their tone as in their frequency and the different titles she gave to each email that she sent. I woke her in the night in Ireland. I imagined her standing in the hall at the bottom of the stairs. I would love to say that Susie told me my mother was asking for me, but she said nothing like that. She spoke instead about the medical details and how she herself had been told the news that our mother was in the hospital and how she had despaired of ever finding me. I told her that I would call again in the morning and she said that she would know more then. My mother was not in pain now, she said, although she had been. I did not tell her that my classes would begin in three days because I did not need to. That night... It sounded as though she wanted just to talk to me, to tell me, nothing more. But in the morning when I called, I realized that she had put quick thought into it as soon as she heard my voice on the phone, that she had known I could not make arrangements to leave for Dublin late on a Sunday night, that there would be no flights until the next evening. She had decided to say nothing until the morning. She had wanted me to have an easy night's sleep, and I did. And in the morning when I phoned, she said simply that there would come a moment very soon when the family would have to decide. She spoke about the family as though it were as distant as the urban district council or the government or the United Nations. But she knew and I knew that there were just the three of us. We were the family. And there is only one thing that a family is ever asked to decide in a hospital. I told her that I would come home, I would get the next flight, I would not be in my apartment for some of the furniture deliveries, and I would not be at the university for my first classes. Instead, I would find a flight to Dublin, and I would see her as soon as I could. My friend phoned Aer Lingus and discovered that a few seats were kept free for eventualities like this. I could fly out that evening. You know that I do not believe in God. I do not care much about the mysteries of the universe, unless they come to me in words, or in music maybe, or in a set of colors, and then I entertain them merely for their beauty and only briefly. I do not even believe in Ireland. But you know, too, that in these years of being away, there are times when Ireland comes to me in a sudden guise, when I see a hint of something familiar that I want and need. I see someone coming toward me with a soft way of smiling or a stubborn, uneasy face or a way of moving warily through a public place or a raw, almost resentful stare into the middle distance. 
In any case, I went to JFK that evening and I saw them as soon as I got out of the taxi. A middle-aged couple pushing a trolley that had too much luggage on it. The man looking fearful and mild, as though he might be questioned by someone at any moment and not know how to defend himself. And the woman, harassed and weary, her clothes too colorful, her heels too high, her mouth set in pure, blind determination, but her eyes humbly watchful, undefiant. I could easily have spoken to them and told them why I was going home, and they both would have stopped and asked me where I was from, and they would have nodded with understanding when I spoke. Even the young men in the queue to check in, going home for a quick respite, just looking at their tentative stance and standing in their company saying nothing, that brought ease with it. I could breathe for a while without worry, without having to think. I, too, could look like them, as though I owned nothing or nothing much and were ready to smile softly or keep my distance without any arrogance if someone said, excuse me, or if an official approached. When I picked up my ticket and went to the check-in desk, I was told to go to the other desk, which looked after business class. It occurred to me, as I took my bag over, that it might be airline policy to comfort those who were going home for reasons such as mine with an upgrade, to cosset them through the night with quiet sympathy and an extra blanket or something. But when I got to the desk, I knew why I had been sent there, and I wondered about God and Ireland because the woman at the desk had seen my name being added to the list and had told the others that she knew me and would like to help me now that I needed help. Her name was Frances Carey, and she had lived next door to my aunt's house, where we, myself, and Cahill were left when my father got sick. I was eight years old then. Frances must have been ten years older, but I remember her well as I do her sister and her two brothers, one of whom was close to me in age. Their family owned the house that my aunt lived in, the aunt who took us in. They were grander than she was and much richer, but she had become friendly with them, and there was, since the houses shared a large back garden and some outhouses, a lot of traffic between the two establishments. Cahill was four then, but in his mind, he was older. He was learning to read already. He was clever and had a prodigious memory and was treated as a young boy in our house rather than a baby. He could decide which clothes to wear each day and what television he wanted to watch and which room he would sit in and what food he would eat. When his friends called at the house, he could freely ask them in or go out with them. When relatives or friends of my parents called, they asked for him too and spoke to him and listened avidly to what he had to say. In all the years that followed, Kyle and I never once spoke about our time in this new house with this new family, and my memory, usually so good, is not always clear. I cannot remember, for example, how we got to the house, who drove us there, or what this person said. I know that I was eight years old only because I remember what class I was in at school when I left and who the teacher was. It is possible that this period lasted just two or three months, 
Maybe it was more. It was not summer. I'm sure of that, because Susie, who remained unscathed by all of this, or so she said when once, years ago, I asked her if she remembered it, was back at boarding school. I have no memory of cold weather in that house in which we were deposited, although I do think that the evenings were dark early. Maybe it was from September to December, or the first months after Christmas. I'm not sure. What I remember clearly is the rooms themselves, the parlor and dining room almost never used, and the kitchen, larger than ours at home, and the smell and taste of fried bread. I hated the hot thick slices, fresh from the pan, soaked in lard and dripping. I remember that our cousins were younger than we were and had to sleep during the day, or at least one of them did, and we had to be quiet for hours on end, even though we had nothing to do. We had none of our toys or books. I remember that nobody liked us, either of us, not even Kyle, who, before and after this event, was greatly loved by people who came across him. We slept in my aunt's house and ate her food as best we could, and we must have played or done something, although we never went to school. Nobody did us any harm in that house. Nobody came near us in the night, or hit either of us, or threatened us, or made us afraid. The time we were left by our mother in our aunt's house has no drama attached to it. It was all grayness, strangeness. Our aunt dealt with us in her own distracted way. Her husband was mild, distant, almost good-humored. And all I know is that our mother did not get in touch with us once, not once during this time. There was no letter or phone call or visit. Our father was in the hospital. We did not know how long we were going to be left there. In the years that followed... Our mother never explained her absence, and we never asked her if she had ever wondered how we were or how we felt during those months. This should be nothing, because it resembles nothing, just as one minus one resembles zero. It should be barely worth recounting to you as I walk the empty streets of this city in the desert so far away from where I belong it feels as though Kahel and I had spent that time in the shadow world, as though we had been quietly lowered into the dark, everything familiar missing, and nothing we did or said could change this, because no one gave any sign of hating us. It did not strike us that we were in a world where no one loved us, or that such a thing might matter. We did not complain. We were emptied of everything, and in the vacuum came something like silence. Almost no sound at all, just some sad echoes and dim feelings. I promise you that I will not call. I have called you enough and woken you enough times in the years when we were together and in the years since then. But there are nights now in this strange, flat and forsaken place when those sad echoes and dim feelings come to me slightly louder than before. They are like whispers or trapped whimpering sounds. 
and I wish that I had you here. I wish that I had not called you all those other times when I did not need to as much as I do now. My brother and I learned not to trust anyone. We learned then not to talk about things that matter to us, and we stuck to this as much as we could, with a sort of grim, stubborn pride, all our lives as though it were a skill. But you know that, don't you? I do not need to call you to tell you that. At JFK that night, Francis Carey smiled warmly and asked me how bad things were. When I told her that my mother was dying, she said that she was shocked. She remembered my mother so well, she said. She said she was sorry. She explained that I could use the first-class lounge, making it clear, however, in the most pleasant way, that I would be crossing the Atlantic in coach, which was what I had paid for. If I needed her, she said, she could come up in a while and talk, but she had told the people in the lounge and on the plane that she knew me, and they would look after me. As we spoke and she tagged my luggage and gave me my boarding pass, I guessed that I had not laid eyes on her for more than 30 years, but in her face I could see the person I had known, as well as traces of her mother and one of her brothers. In her presence, the reminder she offered of that house where Kahel and I had been left all those years ago, I could feel that this going home to my mother's bedside would not be simple, that some of our loves and attachments are elemental and beyond our choosing, and for that very reason they come spiced with pain and regret and need and hollowness and a feeling as close to anger as I will ever be able to manage. Sometime during the night in that plain, as we crossed part of the Western Hemisphere, quietly and, I hope, unnoticed, I began to cry. I was back then in the simple world before I had seen Francis Carey, a world in which someone whose heartbeat had once been mine and whose blood became my blood and inside whose body I once lay curled, herself lay stricken in a hospital bed. The fear of losing her made me desperately sad, and then I tried to sleep. I pushed back my seat as the night wore on and kept my eyes averted from the movie being shown, whatever it was, and let the terrible business of what I was flying toward hit me. I hired a car at the airport, and I drove across Dublin in the washed light of that early September morning. I drove through Drumcondra, Dorset Street, Montjoy Square, Gardner Street, and the streets across the river that led south as though they were a skin that I had shed. I did not stop for two hours or more until I reached the house, fearing that if I pulled up somewhere to have breakfast, the numbness that the driving with no sleep had brought, might lift. Susie was just out of bed when I arrived, and Jim was still asleep. Cahill had gone back to Dublin the night before, she said, but would be down later. She sighed and looked at me. The hospital had phoned, she went on, and things were worse. Your mother, she said, had a stroke during the night. 
on top of everything else. It was an old joke between us, never our mother, or my mother, or mammy, or mummy, but your mother. The doctors did not know how bad the stroke had been, she said, and they were still ready to operate if they thought they could, but they needed to talk to us. It was a pity, she added, that our mother's specialist, the man who looked after her heart and whom she saw regularly and liked, was away. I realized then why Kyle had gone back to Dublin. He did not want to be a part of the conversation that we would have with the doctors. Two of us would be enough. He had told Susie to tell me that whatever we decided would be fine with him. Neither of us blamed him. He was the one who had become close to her. He was the one she loved most. Or maybe he was the only one she loved. In those years, anyway. Or maybe that is unfair. Maybe she loved us all, just as we loved her as she lay dying. And I moved in those days, that Tuesday morning to the Friday night when she died, from feeling at times a great remoteness from her to wanting fiercely, almost in the same moment, my mother back where she had always been, in witty command of her world, full of odd dreams and perspectives, difficult, ready for life. She loved, as I did, books and music and hot weather. As she grew older, she had managed, with her friends and with us, a pure charm a lightness of tone and touch. But I knew not to trust it, not to come close, and I never did. I managed, in turn, to exude my lightness and charm. But you know that, too. You don't need me to tell you that, either, do you? I regretted, nonetheless, as I sat by her bed or left so that others might see her, I regretted how far I had moved away from her and how far away I had stayed. I regretted how much I had let those months apart from her in the limbo of my aunt's house and the years afterward, as my father slowly died, eat away at my soul. I regretted how little she knew about me, as she, too, must have regretted that, although she never complained or mentioned it except perhaps to Kyle, and he told no one anything. Maybe she regretted nothing. But nights are long in winter, when darkness comes down at four o'clock, and people have time to think of everything. Maybe that is why I am here now, away from Irish darkness, away from the long, deep winter that settles so menacingly on the place where I was born. I'm away from the east wind, I'm in a place where so much is empty because it was never full, where things are forgotten and swept away if there ever were things. I'm in a place where there is nothing. Flatness, a blue sky, a soft, unhaunted night, a place where no one walks. Maybe I'm happier here than I would be anywhere else, and it is only the poisonous innocence of the moon tonight that has made me want to dial your number and see if you are awake. As we drove to see my mother that morning, I could not ask Susie a question that was on my mind. 
My mother had been sick for four days now and was lying there maybe frightened. And I wondered if she had reached out her hand to Kahel and if they had held hands in the hospital, if they had actually grown close enough for that, or if she had made some gesture to Susie, and if she might do the same to me. It was a stupid, selfish thing I wondered about. And like everything else that came into my mind in those days, it allowed me to avoid the fact that there would be no time anymore for anything to be explained or said. We had used up all our time, and I wondered if that made any difference to my mother then, as she lay awake in the hospital those last few nights of her life. We had used up all our time. She was in intensive care. We had to ring the bell and wait to be admitted. There was a hush over the place. We had discussed what I would say to her so as not to alarm her, how I would explain why I had come back. I told Susie that I would simply say that I'd heard she was in the hospital and I'd had a few days free before classes began and had decided to come back to make sure that she was okay. Are you feeling better? I asked her. She could not speak. Slowly and laboriously, she let us know that she was thirsty and they would not allow her to drink anything. She had a drip in her arm. We told the nurses that her mouth was dry and they said that there was nothing much we could do except perhaps take tiny drops of cold water and put them on her lips using those special little sticks with cotton wool tips that women use to put on eye makeup. I sat by her bed and spent a while wetting her lips. I was at home with her now. I knew how much she hated physical discomfort. Her appetite for this water was so overwhelming and so desperate that nothing else mattered. And then word came that the doctors would see us. When we stood up and told her that we would be back, she hardly responded. We were ushered by a nurse with an English accent down some corridors to a room. There were two doctors there. The nurse stayed in the room. The doctor who seemed to be in charge, who said that he would have been the one to perform the operation, told us that he had just spoken to the anesthetist who had insisted that my mother's heart would not survive an operation. The stroke did not really matter, he said, although it did not help. I could have a go, he said, and then immediately apologized for speaking like that. He corrected himself. I could operate, but she would die on the operating table. There was a blockage somewhere, he said. There was no blood getting to her kidneys and maybe elsewhere as well. The operation would tell us for certain, but it would probably do nothing to solve the problem. It was her circulation, he said. The heart was simply not beating strong enough to send blood into every part of her body. He knew to leave silence then, and the other doctor did too. The nurse looked at the floor. There's nothing you can do then, is there? I said. We can make her comfortable, he replied. How long can she survive like this? I asked. Not long, he said. I mean hours or days? Days, some days. We can make her very comfortable, the nurse said. 
there was nothing more to say. Afterward, I wondered if we should have spoken to the anesthetist personally, or tried to contact our mother's consultant, or asked that she be moved to a bigger hospital for another opinion. But I don't think any of this would have made a difference. For years, we had been given warnings that this moment would come, as she fainted in public places and lost her balance and declined. It had been clear that her heart was giving out, but not clear enough for me to have come to see her more than once or twice in the summer. And then when I did come, I was protected from what might have been said or not said by the presence of Susie and Jim and Kyle. Maybe I should have phoned a few times a week or written her letters like a good son. But despite all the warning signs, or perhaps even because of them, I had kept my distance. And as soon as I entertained this thought, with all the regret that it carried, I imagined how coldly or nonchalantly a decision to spend the summer close by, seeing her often, might have been greeted by her, and how difficult and enervating for her, as much as for me, some of those visits or phone calls might have been, and how curtly efficient and brief her letters in reply to mine would have seemed. And as we walked back down to see her, the nurse coming with us, there was this double regret, the simple one that I had kept away, and the other one, much harder to fathom, that I had been given no choice, that she had never wanted me very much, and that she was not going to be able to rectify that in the few days that she had left in the world. She would be distracted by her own pain and discomfort, and by the great effort she was making to be dignified and calm. She was wonderful, as she always had been. I touched her hand a few times in case she might open it and seek my hand, but she never did this. She did not respond to being touched. Some of her friends came. Kyle came and stayed with her. Susie and I remained close by. On the Friday morning, when the nurse asked me if I thought she was in distress, I said that I did. I knew that if I insisted now, I could get her morphine in a private room. I did not consult the others. I knew that they would agree. I did not mention morphine to the nurse, but I knew that she was wise, and I saw by the way she looked at me as I spoke that she knew that I knew what morphine would do. It would ease my mother into sleep and ease her out of the world. Her breathing would come and go, shallow and deep. Her pulse would become faint. Her breathing would stop and then come and go again. It would come and go until, in that private room late in the evening, it seemed to stop altogether, as, horrified and helpless, we sat and watched her, then sat up straight as the breathing started again, but not for long, not for long at all. It stopped one last time, and it stayed stopped. It did not start again. She was gone. She lay still. We sat with her until a nurse came in and quietly checked her pulse and shook her head sadly. 
and left the room. We stayed with her for a while. Then, when they asked us to leave, we touched her on the forehead one by one, and we left the room, closing the door. We walked down the corridor as though, for the rest of our lives, our own breathing would bear traces of the end of hers, of her final struggle, as though our own way of being in the world had just been halved or quartered by what we had seen. We buried her beside my father, who had been in the grave waiting for her for 33 years, and the next morning I flew back to New York, to my half-furnished apartment on Columbus and 90th, and began my teaching a day later. I understood, just as you might tell me now, if you picked up the phone and found me on the other end of the line, silent at first and then saying that I needed to talk to you, you might tell me that I had over all the years postponed too much. As I settled down to sleep in that new bed in the dark city, I saw that it was too late now, too late for everything. I would not be given a second chance. In the hours when I woke, I have to tell you that this struck me almost with relief. That was Hisham Matar reading One Minus One by Colm Tobin. The story appeared in The New Yorker in May of 2007 and was included in Tobin's collection, The Empty Family, which was published by Scribner in 2011. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead, Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. The questions around retirement have gotten... tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down. So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com actionplan Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker-slash-dealer-affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc., copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. So, Hisham, you brought up the idea of this story being a kind of testament, a sort of direct address to somebody who's off-screen. What do you think that approach brings to this story? 
Well, I think it makes it incredibly intimate and serves this very um, cunning trick that the story plays on us, that it is an act of concealment or a doubling all the time. So it's about a character who's in the night thinking about an event that happened six years ago, the loss of his mother, which he admits he hasn't been very good at thinking about, wanting to call his former lover, uh, who's in a different time zone. It's nighttime there. And that motif then repeats itself again when he recounts to himself and to his lover in his mind, first finding out that his mother was unwell, uh, which all also involved the desire to call at the wrong moment uh, his sister in that in that case. And there's just this sort of doubling that occurs all the time. And then when you realize that what the story is really about is what it actually means to have a mother, what it means to have emerged from within someone and to be uh, separated from them. So it's, it's, a, it's very good at creating this kind of fugal effect of repeating certain motifs and with each time with a variation they become new and more powerful and more moving for that. It's the issue of what is the story exactly? Is it a letter? Is it something he's composing? Is it a, an imagined conversation? Will it ever be sent? I asked uh, Colm about that voice and he, he calls it first person staccato. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, one thing that I wonder is why we know so little about the you in the story. He really gives us almost nothing. He gives us a vision of this man in a white shirt at his mother's funeral, but we don't know where he is. We don't know really much about what the relationship was or how it ended. Why do we get so little information there? I think that's a really interesting detail about it. I mean, I don't know what a short story is, right? I mean, the form itself is so fascinating that sometimes it's described as a kind of explosion, right? That just blows up in your face. With this, though, I feel it's, you know, what, what the art of fiction is, is the desire to, to be seen, to be heard, but to be really seen, to be really understood. And in him telling this to somebody that we know very little about, but know almost everything about in some odd way, right? We know what the the essential thing is about the relationship, the quality of intimacy, the, the tone. Um, it gives um, the narrator a space to uh, elaborate themselves, to elaborate this particular detail in their lives. It's the more moving for it because one of the things that the story is about is a portrait of someone who is both rootless and in, in a moment of deep solitude in the shadow world that it, that is described in the story when he's left with his brother, Cahill, with their aunt. They're really dropped in the deep and he's very much in that space. But what do you think? Why do you think it's like that? I suppose it also allows the narrator not to have to explain himself because he's speaking to someone who knows him. Mm. Um so he can go directly to what's on his mind, you know, in a normal story, he might have to uh, give us more background. Yes, I think that's so true. But isn't it also the case that the people we really need to explain ourselves to are the people that we shouldn't need to explain ourselves to? You know? <laughs> yeah, well, he's desperate to talk to this person. And by having a you in the story, you turn the reader into the you. 
So it forces us mm. in some sense to inhabit the story with him, to yes. be this kind of ex-lover that he doesn't feel comfortable enough to call. <laughs> yes, yes. And he feels he's too much for, right? Which is, of course, one of the, the hallmarks of grief, isn't it? Not only is grief too much for us, but it makes us too much, or the danger is that it would make us too much for those that we love most. Yeah, there's a sense he, he's cashed his chips in already with this man. He says, I wish I hadn't called you back in those times when I didn't need you quite so much, you know? Yes, I should have saved yeah. it up for this yeah. moment. One thing that's interesting to me in the tone of the story, you know, it's, it's elegiac, it's very poetic. It starts off with these lines that are almost like poetry. The moon hangs low over Texas, the moon is my mother. And in fact, that second line is taken from a Sylvia Plath poem. And Colm mentioned that he was reading a lot of Louise Glick at the time that he was writing this. It's hard to write in that tone without a story starting to feel heavy-handed, and he avoids that here. How do you think he does that? I mean, he's, um, he's a master at postponement, and this is one of the things that the story is about, someone who has postponed things too much. But also, I think one of the reasons why it has affected me so deeply is that it sort of reminds you to what extent it's very odd, this thing that happens to us. Uh, we are born to other people. You know? <laughs> Just you walk around the street, you think everybody has come in this way. <laughs> you know, this is, and that one of the things that that means is that so much by necessity will need to be postponed. That you are born into the aftermath of so much that has happened. And one of, one of the things that occurs in a lived life is the desire to catch up or to figure out or to find some kind of consolation between the vivid present, you know, the sharp bite of the present, to use a phrase he uses in the story of buying things, with everything that has occurred and how impossible it is to bridge that distance, you know. One of the things that he does very well is he creates a narrative that endures that space, that doesn't want to collapse it or resolve it, but attends to it and attends to it with a kind of gentleness that I think otherwise it wouldn't be possible, right, to, to be that patient with something like that, something so unbearable um, like that. Mm -hmm. I think you're going straight to the line that the title comes from, which is one minus one resembles zero. Yeah. Resembles zero. I mean, it is zero, but I suppose it comes with the knowledge that it wasn't always zero, that there was something there before. And I'm interested in what that line means to you. You know, I think one of the things I want from narrative um, fiction is, you know, I want philosophy and poetry. You know, I want feelings, emotions, but also I want ideas. I want to be moved, but I want to see things, you know. And with this one, it really does both of those things for me very powerfully. And the thing that I see is I see this sort of, these layers, you know, of a child curled up, you know, inside his mother, uh, and then curled up on the airplane uh, again, you know, inside his concern for his mother. And both the, the double bind, you know, of wanting to, to remain there forever, to never have the connection severed, at the same time the desire to rebel and to turn around and go into the world, he sustains that or, or elaborates on that um, quality by having a relationship that is very tender between 
the mother and the child, but also very, very distant, where there is no touch, there is no warmth. You know, there's charm, but there's no warmth. And that makes it very difficult. And also, as I was reading, I was thinking, you know, <laughs> you know, the secret word isn't the mother's maiden name for nothing. <laughs> it is really the, it is really the connection. It is really the ancestral line with the mother is, is far more powerful, far more material, uh, far more sensuous and potentially far more complicated for that. Yeah. And we don't get much of the father. He's just in the hospital. But the father wasn't able to abandon these two little boys, but the mother was able to abandon them and did. And I suppose there, this idea of one minus one um, resembling zero, it comes up in that context. And I, I think the idea is possibly that when the children are, are left with their aunt, they're not disliked, they're not particularly liked. It's a very neutral environment, but it's remarkable yeah. for them because they were loved at home and now they've lost that so they they've hit the point of zero but with this awareness that there is another option <laughs> there was a one at some point yes yes absolutely the fact that it resembles it is not and it is is not the case you know it, it resembles it is part of the dilemma of the situation you know the part of the dilemma of intimacy i think one of the things that I, that I think the story is interested in is how the more powerful the connection and the feelings are between individuals, the more powerful the mysteries, you know, the more powerful it is to know exactly how someone feels. And by creating this double, Kahal, the brother, who from the word go, as we are told, is very easy in the world, very confident in the world, but also someone who is like a well. Uh, whatever they receive, they will never return. They're very good at keeping secrets. It means that the mystery around the potential of what the relationship between the narrator and his mother might have been, could have been, should have been, uh, mm -hmm. perhaps, um, becomes more powerful. So the story is exactly more poignant and more arresting because the ambition that he has for what might have been between him and his mother is, is still alive, uh, you know, it's still there. Uh, mm -hmm. Why do you think things are so, or have been so cold between them? Does it all go back to that moment of confusing abandonment? Um, that would be my guess, because he, the narrator, goes to that moment and, and actually credits it as the, the moment from which, you know, these things have happened. But but of course, things are more complicated, I'm sure. And the thing that the story is very worried about is habit, as well as questions of postponement. But it's also questions of habituating ourselves to things and how the accumulation of the days has a kind of weight on our actions and makes it sometimes more difficult to tease ourselves out of a certain pattern. And and so in his narration and his testimony or letter to the lover, um, there is also a lament of how the days have constricted or formed uh, the relationship with the lover too, you know. It's, it's really quite elegant the way all of these things are brought together, you know. 
we do come into the world as inheritors, but then we are also makers of our own patterns, you know, or at least involved in it. Maybe not uh, makers of it, but uh, participants in some way. Mm-hmm. But yeah, why do you think it's the case? I mean, the obvious answer is he's the gay son. He's the one who's disappointed her in some way. But there seems to be more than that. And she is a difficult person, and he's he doesn't expect her to have reached out and touched his sister either in the hospital. Mm. She's not physical in that way. And and it makes me think a little of another meaning for the one minus one, because that that is, in a sense, a mother, isn't it? You know, you're a person who's had another person subtracted from you. <laughs> um, yes. So perhaps you resemble zero, but you're still one. Yeah. And something has, has left her unable to reach back out, just as he's been unable to reach back out. Yes, absolutely. And that, that word, stubborn, mm-hmm. is, is, is repeated. No, it's mentioned with the, the, the stubborn pride of, of the brothers and, and earlier the, the stubborn ease of the Irish face when he's at the airport. Um, and I, th- I, I thought he did that beautifully, that sense of returning home and encountering your compatriots at the airport mm-hmm. before you get home. And that recognition. And, and, <laughs> yeah, and, and how you've already sort of departed in that, at that moment. It's very, very beautifully done. Yeah. There's an, another line that, I, that always stands out to me, where he says, I do not care much about the mysteries of the universe unless they come to me in words or in music maybe, or in a set of colors, and then I entertain them merely for their beauty and only briefly. Yeah. Which seems a very strange admission for, I mean, no, it's a character, but it's also an admission for a writer to acknowledge liking words only for their beauty and not for what they say about mystery. What do you make of that line? There's a resistance in it. There's a resistance, but I also thought there's a precision in it because most of the times it's very difficult to sustain an engagement with beauty over a long period of time. So I found that word briefly was really um, accurate and painfully so but also I didn't take it at face value because as soon as somebody says I don't believe in God and they open a paragraph or a section in a story with that you know you know that they do believe in God because (laughs) they're about to um, or they're about to it's um it's um you know it's a complex admission particularly then the way Ireland and God start to become almost interchangeable no from what I've read about Colm, this particular segment of the story in which the boys are left with the aunt is actually drawn from his life and that he and his brother were sent to live with an aunt while their father was hospitalized and the real mother made no attempt to talk to them or see them for, for several months. Mm. And then it was never discussed in his family. So it, it's something that obviously has stayed with him that he's puzzling over for himself through the eyes of this other character, who interestingly is a character from the novel Nora Webster. And originally the story was titled Donald Webster. It was sort of uh, Nora Webster's son as an adult looking back. So it's interesting, you know, you were talking about the layers in the story. There are many layers of narrative here and of voice mm. and, and of who's speaking and who's reflecting. That's that's really interesting. I, I of course, it's very uh, particular, right? The circumstances, the conditions, very specific. But I felt that it touched, you know, universal really sentiments about how mysterious our parents are and 
our desire to be completely consolidated with, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, to become one person at the same time, how mysterious and confining they are. But no, I didn't, I didn't know that. Um, but also, you know, I'm going to declare a prejudice. You know, as soon as a, a writer says this particular scene uh, is based on something that's happened to me, I sort of, I sort of something inside me kind of gives way and I become very bored, you know, because <laughs> I know in a sense it, it almost doesn't matter because I'm sure Colm here reinvented it, you know. Yeah, or, yeah. I mean, it's a way, it's a way of looking at that moment of separation from the mother that everyone has to go through. But it's thrust on him at an early age without his understanding. Yeah. And then somehow he has to digest it for the rest of his life. And in a way, he then does the same to her as an adult, right? He he goes off and he mm. thinks back, why didn't I write more? Why didn't I make an effort to see her? Mm. Um, and perhaps those are thoughts she had regarding that period of time, or perhaps they're not. Right? We yeah. can't know. Yeah, absolutely. That in in other words, both people are left feeling misunderstood, you know. Mm-hmm. And, in, and in this sense of being misgotten, everything, all the distances between the two people and the um, and the generation it's opens up and it's vast and it's a terrible gulf. It really is. It really, I mean, I know I was saying it and joking, but I'm genuinely amazed by us, you know, that we... <laughs> that all of us are having to balance these these distances that exist in the most intimate relationships and and do it as a matter of course you know it's just uh, overwhelming and i don't think of that all the time but reading the stories really makes me feel that very very deeply and every time i've read it you know i couldn't wait to call my mother you know <laughs> very moved by it and or i would think of friends of mine who have lost their their mothers, or obviously in times like these also, I felt a little bit guilty. Uh, having chosen the story, I felt a little worried about people, with so many people being in hospital and so on, listening to a story like that. But but I hope that it would do for, for them what it does for me, which is, it, it's melancholy, but it's a very expansive melancholy. And it's I think it's expansive because at its heart, it, it is touching notes of things that we feel and and connects us to others, you know, to other people's experiences, which is why every time I read it, I wanted to call my mother, but also call friends of mine. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's very powerful this way. Can I ask you about the last line? Yes, I want to get to the last line. In the hours when I woke, I have to tell you that this struck me almost with relief. I mean, this is really... It's very rude of me to even talk about this line in this way, but um, because, you know, Colm is genuinely, I think, a master of, of, of nuance and of rhythm and, and of space. But that line seemed slightly the wrong tone to me. It seemed to close it in a way that was... I wondered, I wondered if he was worried about us feeling too sympathetic for the character and wanted to announce a kind of tone of resistance to the fate, uh, which seems credible to me. So I read it and I think, oh yeah, that's what's going on here. And sometimes I read it and I think, I'm, I'm not sure. I wonder what the story would be like if that if it ended on the line before that. I would not be given a second chance. This is a genuinely an open question. I don't, I, I can't make up my mind about that line, last line. Huh. I think it introduces a completely new 
idea, you know, we've gone through this story full of regret at not having taken this chance, not having tried to reconnect. But he's just told us if he had, he would have been rebuffed. She wouldn't have known how to take it. Mm. It would have been one more hurt for him. So maybe it's better in memory to be blaming himself for not having tried than to be remembering her rejection. Oh, I see. Maybe it was a relief that he didn't try again. Ah, okay. I took it slightly in a slightly different sense. I took it as it's a relief not to have a second chance because he would be liberated from the desire and the obligation. Yeah, I mean, he obviously hasn't been liberated because this is six yeah. years later and he's tried not to think about it and now he's thinking about it and now it's overwhelming him. So in a way, that last line is letting himself off the hook, but it's also perhaps acknowledging that nothing he had could have done would have changed this. Yeah, I think that's, that's got to be right because it's both a lament and a kind of release. You know, that word stubborn comes back to mind, a kind of bloody-minded intent and commitment to live and go forward. You know, it's got both of those things in it. It doesn't indulge at all in, in its lament, but its lament is sincere nonetheless and very deeply felt. But do you, do you feel that this is now given that he hasn't been able or hasn't, for whatever reason, thought about this for the last six years, and now he has thought about it. Do you get the sense that it's the beginning of further thoughts about it, or is that, or that it's somehow done? Well, the relief may be that he's thought about it and understood that he can change it um, mm -hmm. and that he can move forward and perhaps move forward and not call on this, this ex-lover again because mm -hmm. he can also see that any attempt there will be, you know, rejected or rebuffed. I don't know. I mean, that's that's one way to, to see it, but it could also be the beginning of, you know, a lifetime of thinking about this and regretting it. <laughs> Who knows? Yeah. I want to think that he gets a little uh, a little peace, that this isn't going to be underlying and, and uh, nagging at him for another six years. Yes. I mean, one gets the sense that it's mid-stride in some way, you know? It doesn't, to me, seem as dramatic as sort of a first utterance or a last utterance. It seems much more that it's one of the layers and there'll be other layers, other things going on, or have already happened. It's part, actually, of the power of the story, but also of Colm's writing. Oftentimes it's moving exactly because it's bearable. The character is somehow being able to continue, and it's all, all the more moving for it. Uh. Perhaps that last line is also a way of, of letting the reader off the hook, saying it's okay now. You know, you can put the story behind you. Yeah. Yeah, no, I could see that. It's, it's very good manners. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean that sincerely. I think, I think that's one of the, um, the writing that affects me uh, most. Like I said, you know, the things that I want as a greedy reader, you know, I want ideas and, and emotions, but also want architecture and I want somebody who knows how to pace and construct something. And I don't think you can do all of those if you don't have a kind of good manners, you know, which, which I think gentleness is profoundly reliant on, you know, not the passive gentleness, but the active gentleness to try to 
to really see something with such complexity, to go around it, not with the intention to sort of rip it up and flatten it out and consign it to some kind of formula, but to to go around it, look at it, and then leave it uh, at the end of the story like this one does, to leave it in such a way that maintains its resonance. And you feel the resonance of the story sing much more paradoxically once you've left it, you know, a month later or something. The way that stories stay with us, no? The way that they, mm-hmm. that we carry them. I have such profound um, confidence in in the human imagination and how it, it does that, you know? I mean, even, <laughs> even sometimes when I encounter somebody and they tell me scenes from my book and they've got the wrong scene or they merged a detail from here and a detail from there, they've sort of rewritten it, you know, mm-hmm. in their own imagination. I, I love those moments. I never correct people on that because I think that's actually part of what happens. And so when I, when you asked me to choose a story and I was looking at several and I was looking at this one closely and hadn't read it for a few years and... There were several things that I misremembered, if you like, or remembered mm-hmm. in my own particular way, or the story has allowed me a facility to remember them in a particular way. For example, I was confident that this lover sat on the sofa that the narrator bought from Bloomingsdale <laughs> in New York. Somehow that line of, you know, you haven't been to the, to the apartment, notwithstanding the fact that I'd read that line, over time my imagination has picked up this former lover and moved him to New York, at least for a moment, and <laughs> sat him on that sofa. You know? So and I, I think this kind of um, creative engagement between our sensibilities and a text is, is a wonderful thing. And, and with great writing such as this, it becomes much more elaborate and expansive. Well, thank you so much, Hisham. My pleasure. <laughs> My pleasure. Kon Tobin is the author of two story collections and nine novels, including Brooklyn and The Master, for which he won the International Dublin Literary Award, the Stonewall Book Award, and the Lambda Literary Award. A new novel, The Magician, will be published by Scribner in September. Hisham Matar has published two novels, In the Country of Men and Anatomy of a Disappearance. His memoir, The Return, published in 2016, won the Pulitzer Prize, the Folio Prize, and the Penn Jean Stein Book Award. His most recent book, The Memoir A Month in Siena, was published last year. You can download more than 160 previous episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast or subscribe to the podcast for free in Apple Podcasts. On the Writer's Voice Podcast, you can hear short stories from the magazine read by their authors. You can find the Writer's Voice and other New Yorker podcasts on your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page or rate and review us in Apple Podcasts. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Michelle Moses. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.